was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, the legendary actor of stage and screen, Austin Pendleton. After making his debut opposite Barbara Harris in Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hung You in the Closet and I'm Feeling So Sad off-Broadway, he went on to star in the original Fiddler on the Roof as Muddle, plus The Little Foxes, An American Millionaire, Doubles, The Diary of Anne Frank, the recent Choir Boy, and the upcoming Broadway production of The Minutes. As a director, he directed Elizabeth Taylor and Maureen Stapleton in The Little Foxes, and Shelter, Spoils of War, and the upcoming between Riverside and Crazy, among others. On screen, his many credits include My Cousin Vinny, Skidoo, The Front Page, What's Up Doc, The Mayor Has Two Faces, and more. He can currently be seen off-Broadway at the Theater for the New City in the dark outside, and the documentary starring Austin Pendleton is available to stream. So without further ado, here he is, Austin Pendleton. So I would love to start by asking you how you first became interested in theater. Oh, wow. Um, Briefly, because I could go on and on and on. (laughs) My mom had been a professional actress and my father first, in fact, saw her on stage at the Cleveland Playhouse. I'm in Cleveland right now, rehearsing to be in a play. And um, was smitten by her and she with him. And then they courted briefly. And then um, a year or so later, he was in New York and they met together. They ran into each other at Sardi's, you know, the big theater restaurant at that time in in the Broadway area. And, and they started up again and she got married. I think she had just gotten a great job of a touring company of the Lillian Hellman play, The Children's Hour. Do you know that play? Yes, yes. Yeah. And then the tour had just been, she got one of the flashier parts of the young girls in it. And the um, tour had just been canceled because so many towns along the way in the tour were appalled by the subject matter of the play. This was clearly a whole other era. And they just canceled the tour. And I think she just thought, oh, the hell with it. So she married my father. And in 1938, I was born in 1940. It was World War II, of course. My brother was, who I'm staying with right now, by the way, was born a year and a half after me. And our sister, right at the end of the war, was born. And um, then a couple years after World War II, a group came to my mom and they wanted to start a community theater. They knew of her background. They wanted her advice. Well, she not only gave them advice, she helped a lot with the fundraising. I remember there were great fundraisers at our house in those years. And um, she acted there and she directed there for, I mean, 
often both in the same season, but she would do either one of those every season for the next 40 years. And then she moved to the Boston area because that's where my sister lives and she wanted to be near the grandkids. So during all those, so the rehearsals of the first few productions, the, the theater group, they found the name of the county in Ohio is Trumbull. So it was called Trumbull New Theater. In other words, TNT, if you get it. And, and um, there would be evening rehearsals in our house of the first two, three, four of the productions. And first two productions are actually performed in our living room. And I would just get wildly excited by all this. Now I was not yet, I was seven, eight years old, whatever. And um, I would sneak down and so would my brother after we were supposed to be in bed and hide behind the furniture and watch them. Before the actors arrived, we would arrange the furniture as supposed to be in whatever play it was. And um, watch. And we even finally, me and my brother and some of our friends, we started, you know, in our teenage years, a little theater in the basement of the house we then moved to, did <laughs> shows. And so it all arose from my mom. And I also, as a beginning when I was about seven or eight years old, I had a stutter, a terrible stutter. And it got worse and worse into the teenage years. But I found when I was acting, I would, it would kind of go away. And I remember getting a huge laugh in a play in junior high school where I played the younger brother of George Washington. You remember the old story of the cherry tree and the dad said who chopped down the cherry tree and George Washington as a teenager said, I cannot tell a lie, I did it. And I, as his brother, was given a line in this little one-act play where as George's younger brother, where I say, I cannot tell a lie, George did it. And I said that and got a laugh I still hear in my ears. <laughs> so I was just hooked. But the combination of that and the other, the, the one other factor was in those years, the late 1940s and, you know, annually there was a tour of Oklahoma and we would drive up here to Cleveland and see whatever the new touring company of Oklahoma was, always evening shows. And on the drive back to Warren late at night, I would just fantasize about being in Oklahoma someday, a dream which has never come true. So, all, so I was very theatrically formed as a kid. And it was, got, it was my out from, and years later, the Warren Tribune Chronicle um, did a long article about me and they interviewed my mom. He said, when Austin was a kid, you, you either had to be in, in one of the plays that everybody put on or he wouldn't play. That was the deal. So, as I say, we put on all these plays in our basement and my brother was in them and I was in them and or directed them and other of the group directed some of them. So it just saturated in theater. And um, so that's how it all started. Yeah. 
So it's, so it's a very long answer to your, your simple question. Okay, Charles. Yes, I love hearing it. And so where did you study in terms of high school and college and all of that? Um, well, then um, I was in the public school system in Warren through the ninth grade. And then my parents thought about this book, about me and Alec, my brother, as I say, I'm staying with right now with his, him and his wife, um, um, that we should go to a prep school that would heighten our chances of getting into a good college. So there was, a, there was and still is a school in, here in Cleveland called University School. So we went there. I entered in the 10th grade, Alec in the ninth grade. Alec then got tired of being in the same school as me, so he eventually to another prep school in the Mich in, in the Detroit area uh, called Cranbrook. And, um, but I was in university school, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. The irony is that my first year there was the first year that the colleges began to shift their attention to the public schools quite dramatically. So I didn't even have to be at university school. And, and uh, um, it was a grim day when the headmaster stood up and said and announced that the leading scholar in the class of the senior year when I was in the 10th grade had not been admitted at a major university. It was always a given before. So I didn't even have, I had a great time at university school, but but it was, I didn't have to go there. Then I got admitted as an undergraduate at Yale. And Yale, of course, had a very active theater scene. There's also the Yale School of Drama, which is a graduate program, but I never went on to that. What I did was I was involved in all the extracurricular plays at Yale while pursuing my course load outside of that. And, um, so again, there was a lot of theater going on in those years in my life, but extracurricularly. And in the summers I would go, the summer before my freshman year, the summer immediately before my freshman year and the summer before my sophomore year, I was an apprentice at the, at the Williamstown uh, Theater Festival, which was then called the Williamstown Summer Theater in the Berkshires. And, and um, I got very into that. And then two years after the second of those years in 1968, I was in the non-equity company there. And I started to get work in New York. So I joined equity. So I would repeatedly come back to Williamstown every summer, particularly when the founder, the basic founder of it was there, a Greek man called Nikos Sakharopoulos. And that's what, with him that I also started directing professionally. Although I had um, gone to Ohio after I was in Fiddler on the Roof, I went to Ohio and directed my mother at TNT in the Glass Menagerie. That was the first play I ever directed as an adult. And, um, but then I began to really direct professionally a few years after that. Um, at Williamstown and then other places. So I'm curious because you've been a teacher and a mentor to so many people, but who were the most sort of important teachers for you or the people that you studied with? 
Oh, wow, the list is endless. Well, I, I had three major acting teachers. I mean, the three most important in my life acting teachers, all of whom were major acting teachers. One was Uta Hagen, you know? Yeah. yeah. Was her husband, Herbert Berghoff, who had begun what's called HB Studio, and HB is either taken to stand for Herbert Berghoff or Hagen Berghoff. Um, Herbert didn't care which way it was read. Um, so I, I, and then, Herbert, after I'd studied a couple of terms with him and a couple of terms with Uda, asked me to teach there, which I began doing in 1969 and I'm still doing. The last year and a half I've been doing it on Zoom for obvious reasons, but I've been teaching for over 50 years now. Um, and I think it has stabilized me because this profession is so volatile. So the upsets up and the downs are really downs. And, um, but if you have that teaching every week, it just somehow keeps you in balance. Um, the third of the major acting teacher I have was Robert Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, you know who that is, well, AKA known to his people who studied with him and everybody who knew him as, as as Bobby Lewis, he was sort of, you know, well, no, he was much more than sort of an important Broadway director. He had a lot of hits in his in his career as a director, and um, also a famous acting teacher. And he, like Uta Hagen, has written. They wrote like two. Bobby, I think, wrote three, and her, and Uta wrote two books about acting and the study of acting. And um, the reason I studied with Bobby Lewis is he was in the, um, there was a thing in the season of 1962-63 called the Lincoln Center Training Program. And that was uh, th uh, 30 young actors and some of them not so young, but from I'd say ranging 20 to the mid thirties um, were selected after a long audition process. And we were told at the beginning of the eight months, eight hours a day, five days a week, eight months, that at the end of those eight months, half of us would be taken into the Lincoln Center Company, which was beginning the following fall with the Lincoln Center Company under the direction of the legendary Elia Kazan. So Kazan would show up at our, when we would do our scenes and stuff like that. I think I, I may, I might say I had in a way one of the best times of anyone in that training ground because I really didn't care whether I got into the company or not. I couldn't believe I was getting all this training for free. And if you were already in a play, you could stay in the play, but you couldn't audition for a play. But some people had to drop out like like Martin Sheen was beginning a family then. But he had to drop out because he just couldn't afford it finally. And he got offered to be in a play or something like that. And he, he needed to take it, you know. And um, but he had um, friends ever since. And the um um but lots of remarkable people were in it. Faye Dunaway, Frank Langella, 
who Frank Langella did not get admitted in the company at the end of the day, which made me begin to question the whole thing. He was clearly the most qualified actor to be taken into the company because we were being trained to do not only realistic plays, but the classics and everything for those eight months. And Frank can do all of that. <laughs> and that was when I began to think, wait a minute, there's a screw. Now I was taken in and uh, we were to, uh, in that spring of 1963, I learned I was be taken in. And I had the summer off and I, I went to Williamstown. And, um, and I came back for the fall and was going to start. I had a bit part in Kazan's production of the, what was then the new play by Arthur Miller called After the Fall. And I thought, well, it's a bit part, but I mean, I'm going to be in a Kazan production of a new Arthur Miller play. <laughs> I'm there, I'm there. But then I got offered, but then I got offered, I got, I got auditioned for, and then ultimately got offered a part in Fiddler on the Roof. So I did not go into the Lincoln Center Company. I, 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 um, I went with Fiddler on the Roof. And um, so, but, but that, that eight months with Bobby Lewis, was as instructive as the, all the different terms with Uda and with Herbert down at HB Studio. So that has the, that's the training aspect of things. When you were starting out as an actor, how did you sort of find your niche in terms of the kind of roles that you would be playing? Well, the first play I was in was a play by Arthur Coppett, who passed recently, um, a very gifted man, obviously, and the, the play called oh dad poor dad mama's hung you in the closet and i'm feeling so sad right yeah. and um that play when i was a senior at yale undergraduate senior at yale caused quite a stir because when arthur was an undergraduate at harvard it was performed at harvard with harvard undergraduates and caused quite a stir and this was written up in the papers it wasn't exactly reviewed in the papers but it was you heard all about it and um, and then uh, it was announced it was coming to Broadway, or at least to New York, with a professional company. And one day, in, toward the end of my senior year at, at Yale in the spring, I stopped at the bookstore in Grand Central Station before I got on the train to ride to New Haven. And they there in the bookstore they had Oh Dad Poor Dad. I, just out of curiosity, I'll read it. And I read it on the train and I perceived that one is the three leading characters are, are a mother, her son, and a girl the son gets entrenched with, whom at the end of the play he murders because he can't handle his, everything. And so I read it on the train going up to New Haven. And the character also has a stutter. I like the play a lot. I, I still do. Um, I, I didn't particularly want the part, but I remember making the cold-blooded calculation. If I ever get an audition for this part, I get the part. It wasn't a part I was aching to play, but, but I'll get the part, and it's a good part. I mean, it's a marvelous part. Then I read that it was going to be done in England and then brought to New York with the great American actress and teacher, Stella Adler, you know? 
And um, the boy was being played by this brilliant young English actor of the time named Andrew Ray, who had just been on Broadway in A Taste of Honey with Joan Plowright, who I'd seen, I mean, he knocked me out. He, so I thought, well, that's that. But I mean, I, I'm not heartbroken about the role. I mean, then my brother and a friend of ours, after I graduated, um, went to Europe. We went first to, you know, we were in London. We read in the paper that in Cambridge, Odette Poirier was trying out with Stella Adler, Andrew Ray and company. And I said, well, let's go see this because I've read the play and it's coming to New York and it's quite a play. And also Stella Adler, I'd never seen. I mean, she was a legend and I'd never seen her act. And Andrew Ray is great, you know. So we went up there and indeed Stella Adler was, I can still describe that performance to you. It was so haunting and driven and brilliant. And Andrew Ray was extraordinary. He was better in it than I think I ever was in a year of playing it. I mean, he was extraordinary. The girl was a little off, although I could tell she was a fine actress, but she was not quite right for the tone of a play or something. Um, but those two were just awesome. Then my brother and a friend and I went down into Spain, south of Spain. We were waiting other members of the family and friends to come over and we were gonna be in Europe all summer. And one day in that siesta time in the small Spanish town that we were staying uh, close to, um, I was reading the International Time magazine and there was this review of Odad Poor Dad in London that said um, it was a disaster. And that Stella Adler clearly was not rehearsed enough to be playing this part. That made no sense to me. I'd seen her before in Cambridge, before they came to London. And it was, as I say, staggering. I thought, what is going on? But I sort of forgot. I thought, well, that's too bad. I guess that's it for Oded Pordat. And I forgot all about it. And then um, we were in Europe all summer. I got back and, and moved into an apartment with guys I knew from college and guys I knew from, from Warren, Ohio who were now in law school at Columbia. So we had a whole bunch of us in two apartments that were right next to each other, although not adjoined. And I was reading the New York Times Magazine. There was an interview with Jerome Robbins and who had just had West Side Story and Gypsy and all those things. And it said his next production was to be Oh Dad, Poor Dad. First time he'd ever done a play, first time he'd done anything off Broadway but that he was very struck with the piece and he wanted to direct it. And I thought, well, I should get an audition for this. And um, so I went to different agents' office that fall, offices that fall, and I would say, would you get me an audition for this? And they would ask me my credits, which consisted of small roles at Williamstown and, and leading roles in college. And they said, now wait, this is a leading role in a Jerome Robbins production. You just don't have the credits. And I, I said, oh, they were, they, they were pleasant about it. But they said, you know, come back when you've accumulated a little bit more, you know. And I forgot about it. I thought, well, what the hell? Okay, I will. I'll start taking acting classes at some point. Now, you know, I will. Then, in December, and the play, Oh Dad, was supposed to go into rehearsal January 15th. 
a friend of mine from Williamstown called me and said she'd been talking to her agent that day and they were gossiping. And my, the agent, who was, whose name was Deborah Coleman, who then became my agent for 35 years until she retired, um, she, Deborah Coleman, had told my friend, Jerry Robbins cannot find the boy for that play. He's auditioned every actor in New York and he just can't find what he wants. And my friend said to her, well, I know somebody who could really do that part. I mean, he's just out of college and everything, but he could do that. I know him from Williamstown. So she will send him in, we got nothing to lose. And so I went in, she sent me the casting, she, Deborah Coleman, sent me the casting director, said, well, we got nothing to lose. And I auditioned and Jerry really liked it and wondered who I was, <laughs> the hell I was, you know, and then, um, called me back and I'd never had a call back before. And I keep telling this to acting classes, beware of the callback. Because suddenly it's yours to lose. And I blew the callback. I just, I had, I lost everything that I'd had. And so he called me up the next day in, in my apartment and said, come over and talk to me. And I did, he said, what happened? And I said, I don't know what I'm doing. He said, I'm, I'm just gonna keep calling you back. So he would keep calling me back and reading me. And I got marginally better, but nowhere close to that first audition. Finally, I went home for Christmas and I got a call from the agency the day after Christmas saying, Jerry wants to see you again tomorrow morning in New York. And I said, oh, I, I don't wanna, it's just not working. I just wanna chill in Warren, Ohio for a month or so with my friends and just, you know, forget it. I'm happy here. So she said, um, the agent said, um, so I'm to tell Jerome Robbins that you'd rather chill in Warren Ohio than come in and audition for him again. I said, okay, I'll come in. And that night I flew in the next morning, I went in, I was, I saw I was reading opposite uh, Barbara Harris, who I'd heard a lot about because she'd come to Broadway that fall with, with the Second City Improvisational Group from Chicago and had caused quite a stir. I thought, oh. So she and I started reading and it took off. It just took off. And we both got the part that day. And then the mother was cast a week, a week later from, by an actress whom I idolized in the movies and on Broadway, Joe Van Fleet. And, and all of a sudden, so finally, just a week and a half before the rehearsals, the show was cast once, once he had Joe Van Fleet. And so then I was in that play for a year. It was a very difficult year because it, the role had a stutter and it's very hard for a stutterer to play a stutterer and keep it under control. So my performance fluctuated wildly from night to night for a year and it was a great strain. And finally, it went through a kind of a nosedive after about a year. And the producer, who was the sweetest guy in the world, named T.A. Hamilton, called me after Sunday night show into his office and said, I think we got to fire you. I said, and I virtually said, great. <laughs> so two weeks later, my friends came over after the show and we met at a bar at the corner. It was over between First and Second Avenue. And it was when the bars on Second Avenue were dive bars, which was, you know, really neat. And we drank and I thought, I'm so relieved. But then I thought, it's too bad. 
Jerry Robbins would probably never hire me again. But then eight months later, he started auditioning me for Fiddler on the Roof. And then I got that. I'm curious to ask about Barbara Harris and what it was like to work with her, because I know people have different sort of opinions. Oh, she, she was heaven. First of all, she, she had the major triumph on the show. I mean, Joe Van Fleet certainly got good reviews. And I did too. I did. We, we both got really okay reviews. Barbara had a triumph and immediately Richard Rogers and Alan J. Lerner, three weeks after we opened, announced they were going to write a musical for her. They didn't even know what it was going to be about. They just, and so we sold out for a year on the strength of that. And, and, um, uh, <clears throat> that that finally Richard Rogers withdrew because Alan J. Lerner was high all the time and they did, you know, so, so Burton, the show finally turned into On a Clear Day, You Can See Forever. But anyway, Barbara, during that year, she was lovely. And I was having my fluctuations and my ups and downs and she was just right there. She was very sweet, she was very uncompetitive. She was very upset that she was going to be a star. She really didn't want a lot of attention. And it was almost impossible she was not going to be a star. On top of all that, she could sing. So she did two major musicals, which on Clear Day was the first. She won the Tony for one of them, The Apple Tree. She, she, um, um, she started getting in the movies right away. And she just didn't like, she hated the idea of fame. In fact, in her obituaries, what, a year ago, a few months ago, whatever, the headline in the Times was Barbara Harris, the reluctant star. And um, there came a point in her mid-career when she just really didn't want to work at all anymore. And, and um, it was sad because she was so brilliant. But because she had that improvisational training and skill in Chicago that they then brought to New York, she was able in performance for that year of Odette to be very fluid and very, she would go with whatever was happening with me. We had two long scenes together. And, and she was a, she was wonderful. She was a very sweet-natured person. Um, I never saw her get anything I would call remotely hostile. I think life got harder for her as she went along. I think she had a couple of nervous breakdowns and stuff. She and really didn't want fame. I mean, that, that Times headline was right. And we would often go out for a drink after the show, and she would say, I just hate this. And... Alan J. Lerner and Richard Rogers were giving her albums of their shows. And she said, um, Richard Rogers is this, she's this is this Richard Rogers is talented. <laughs> she basically never heard of him. <laughs> and, uh, um, I, I kind of like that 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 my fair lady, whatever it's called, she said. <laughs> Camelot, I don't like. I said, well, don't tell him that. Don't tell him you don't like Camelot. <laughs> All right, I won't. <laughs> and she was like that. She was very special. 
Often after the show, Second City had then moved, when we were playing Odette, they'd moved their show downtown to the village. So they would perform at night and improvise. And then at 11 o'clock after their performances, they would, a handful of the audience would just hang out and stay there, have a couple more drinks. And they would just start working on new improvisations. And sometimes, sometimes Barbara and I would go downtown there and, um, and watch, and she would join them. And she would begin those improvisations with them at 11 o'clock. And that was really staggering to watch. She was a total artist at that. And um, so that was, it was a very traumatic year for me in all the, the ways I've just described, but it was also this wonderful year. And I love Joe Van Fleet. Joe Van Fleet had the just reputation for being unbelievably difficult. And flashes of that would happen, but basically we got along very well. And we we remained friend for the rest of friends for the rest of Joe's life. She was very supportive, you know. And and um, I tried to be supportive of her because her career, career kept getting more and more into trouble because she was famously hard to work with. The only director who would work with her ever worked with her more than once was Kazan, and basically because I think he was proud he. He could work with anybody. If they were as talented as Joe Van Fleet, he would work with anybody. And of course, have you ever seen her in East of Eden? I haven't, but... Oh, well, first of all, it's a great film that Kazan with, with, with James Dean and Julie Harris and everything. Uh, and, and she plays the mother of James Dean, who's separate. This film is set like in 1912 or something from a Steinbeck book. And... She has left her husband years ago to raise the children on his own and has become the madam of the whorehouse in this small town in California. So James Dean comes to her for money because he has his whole business plan he wants to do. And they have this scene right in the middle of the movie that is so good. And I, I saw the movie a number of times and then years later, years later at the Film Forum in New York, they showed the movie. And I went on a Sunday night. It played for a week or two or whatever. House was half full. At the end of that scene between James Jean, Dean and Joe Van Fleet, 10 minute scene, the audience of the film forum burst into applause. And I started crying because of that. Um, she was such a troubled lady that she paid for that. You know what I mean? It's such, it's such, it's a, oh, you've got to see that movie. Oh, I will. I yeah, will. It, it's, a, it's a beautiful movie. It's a, it's a unique movie. There isn't any other movie that's like it. James Dean, of course, is out of sight. Julie Harris is as good as she ever was in anything, which is saying a great deal. And Joe Van Fleet is astonishing. And you've got to watch it. Oh, I will. I will. Yeah. And I won't conduct this interview unless you promise me to watch it. Oh, yes, yeah. And so on Fiddler on the Roof, there was the famous conflict between Zero Mostel and Jerome Robbins. And how much did you sort of witness of that? <laughs> One was right in the middle of it. Yes. Yeah. Zero was constitutionally unable to give the same performance twice. He was wild with invention. 
And sometimes his inventions were inspired. Well, they were always inspired and sometimes they were appropriate. <laughs> but other times they were just went off into crazy, crazy realms. And my big scene with him was in the first act where I confront him and demand to marry his older daughter, even though I'm a poor tailor. And the things he would pull in that scene from night to night were just outrageous. But on the other hand, I think he kind of loosened me up as an actor. He sort of, I mean, I, I loved him. I just adored him. He, he kind of blew the doors open inside me as an actor. Because I would never do the kind of things he would do, but just I had to be open to them. Some of the cast, he legitimately really offended. Um, but, but others of us, I mean, it just, he was inspiring in his bizarre way. I've never worked and had never before and have never since in over almost 60 years now worked with anybody remotely like that. But no, he, he and Jerry, first of all, they, there was conflict because Zero had been blacklisted and Jerry had named names. So the show that Zero did before Fiddler was the funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And right after Oh Dad, Poor Dad opened, Jerry Robbins was called down to work on funny thing happened on the way to the forum and was out of town. And it was directed by his mentor, Jerry's mentor, George Abbott. And George Abbott was calling for help. And, George, and Jerry, in a way, owed his Broadway career to George Abbott as a choreographer and then choreographer director. And, um, so he, with heavy heart, he plodded down to Washington to work on Funny Thing Happened the Way of the Front. And of course, the day he walked into the rehearsal room, they were rehearsing in the day and playing at night. Uh, Zero apparently greeted him in front of the whole cast by saying, hi, loose lips. So that got things off too. <laughs> Jerry, in his two weeks down there, saved the show. He turned it into a huge hit. And when I went to see the show, um, I went to it with Joe Van Fleet actually on one of our nights. So I, it's the funniest show I've ever seen. I mean, I've seen subsequent productions of it, which were good, but that one was inspired. I mean, you, it was so, you laughed so hard that at the end, you sat in a sort of happy exhaustion in the theater and couldn't get out of your seat. And so um, on the so so zero had all this ambivalence going on. On the one hand, he hated Jerry. On the other hand, Jerry had saved his show. So then he agreed to do Fiddler and the rehearsals. And Jerry had long. We had eight weeks of rehearsal for Fiddler in New York, and then eight weeks on the road. And the first part of being on the road was in Detroit, where we got some pretty awful reviews. <clears throat> including the Variety Review. And if you want entertainment, I beg you to look up the Variety Review of Fiddler on the Roof in 1960. It would be in either late July or August of 1964. I mean, it's just the worst review you've ever read. It's saying basically, forget it. There's nothing about this show except Zero and Still that is ever going to work, ever. Nothing, no other actor, Alas, they named names. Um, um, the book is bad. The score is bad. The Robbins choreography is bad. 
and on that point, they're entering the realm of pathology. You know, it, it's just, <laughs> no, the Robin's choreography is not bad. It just, you, you just can't say that. You can't say it about the book or the score either, but come on. I mean, but it was a loathing review. And Hal Prince, the producer of it, told me 10 years ago that because of that review, he almost couldn't raise the rest of the money and Fiddler on the Roof almost closed in Detroit. Fiddler on the Roof almost closed in Detroit. So we were all operating on the road in a kind of siege mentality that was very productive. And Jerry, I said to Jerry the night of the, the day that Friday Review came out where everybody was sobbing in the dressing room and all this. We did the show and we went to this bar afterwards and the cast was all in the back deciding who was gonna sleep with each other that night. And, and um, but Jerry was in the front just at the bar with a drink. And I, because I guess because I'd done the other show with him, Odette, I had the nerve to say to him, what are you gonna do, Jerry? And he said, 10 things a day. When I teach directing, I start with that story. And it was weeks of very fine detail work on all the scenes and little restagings within the numbers, but essentially real fine. At this moment would be clear if at this point you crossed over there to do something in the middle of that line. Maybe if we added a sentence to that line or took a sentence out of that, it was like that for weeks. <coughs> and suddenly the show was radiant. And um, uh, it was an amazing feat that he pulled. And, uh, <coughs> but even when we got to New York, the reviews were mixed, but it was such a favorite with the audience that it just, finally you couldn't get into it. I'd be curious to ask you too about not just Sarah Mostel, but B. Arthur and Joanna Marlinman, Maria Karnilova. B. Yes. Arthur, well, B. got very frustrated in Detroit because Jerry kept cutting down her part. I mean, he had to have these long speeches and they would get more and more cut every day. Well, we were three and a half hours long. And she, B. had been, had, she played in a lead in a couple of musicals in a couple of seasons before that. But they always closed out of town, although she was always regarded to be brilliant, quite accurately, I'm sure. So she was getting to the point where, why, why am I, my part is getting smaller every night. So she wondered if she should even stay in the show. So she said, I'm gonna go home and call Jean tonight. Her husband was Jean Sachs, the director, the actor and director. And so next night we said, so B, did you call Jean? She said, yes. We said, what did he say? Well, he said, B, despite the reviews, I think this show's gonna be a big hit. So you can either stay in a hit or you can close annually in Philadelphia as you have been doing the last few years. <laughs> and, uh, she said, oh, I give up. <laughs> I'll stay in the show. But she was she was just like you would, she had the exact same wit that you would see in her television shows. Have you watched episodes of, say, for example, for Golden Girls? And oh, stuff? yes, yes. No. I have. Lots of that same, that's, that's a very, 
I'm sure she collaborated on those scripts because that's exactly her wit and her, just as a person, her instinctive timing. And she was kind. <clears throat> she was compassionate. You know, when the rest of us would get in trouble, she would be concerned. And I mean, you couldn't not like her. She, she still, she left the show early. She left, well, she was in it for several months, but she, she left before her contract was out. And she um, was replaced by a marvelous woman named Florence Stanley. And um, then I left at, when my contract was up and Zero left. And Bert Convey all left. When we all left the nights our contract was up in mid-August. We'd, we'd been in the show, if you include the out-of-town trial, for a little over a year by that point. And um, I didn't want to, I left because I didn't want to play it without zero. And I was, you know, and I wanted to go home and direct my mother in the glass menagerie, you know, and all that. And Hal even offered me a chance to come back into the show after I got back from Ohio. He said, are you going to renew? And I said, no. He said, why? I said, I'm going to go direct my mother in the glass menagerie in Ohio. He said, I don't want to be known as the guy who got in the middle of all that. So go to Ohio and you can come back. And meanwhile, my understudy was, was uh, Leonard Fry, who played a smaller, the, the son of the rabbi in it, and was my understudy. And um, he said, I'll put Leonard on for those three months. But then I didn't go back into it. I decided not to go back into it. And, and Leonard ultimately got the movie for which he got an Oscar nomination, which was richly deserved. I, I've never watched the whole movie, but I've watched his scenes and he's brilliant in it. So like everybody won, you know what I mean? Yeah. And he was also the most like, supportive understudy you can imagine. And I would say, oh, Leonard, I'm falling apart. He'd say, oh, wait a minute. You know, he was like that. And um, then he, a few years later, began to have, he was in The Boys in the Band, and then he was in the movie of Fiddler on the Roof. So he took off for quite a bit. He perished from AIDS. Uh, but um, he wouldn't, if that had not happened, Today, he would still be having a brilliant career because he was a character actor. So he could have just gone on and on and on. And he was a total sweetheart. He had that overlay of being the bitter, cynical thing, which fooled absolutely nobody. Because he would help, he, you know, he would help anybody. So um, B. Arthur, and who else did you ask about? Oh, and oh, oh Joanna Merlin. Oh, yes. Oh yeah, she and I are still friends. Yeah, we were very close friends, beginning with that, very close friends. What else do you want to know about? Well, I'd love to make sure that we talk about a movie that you did, which I'm very curious about, which is Skidoo with Carol Channing and... Oh yeah, that was the first movie I was in. I had a tiny part in the movie before that, only three lines or whatever. But um, a guy named Bill Cannon, William Cannon, spelled like a cannon, you know, had written a script called Brewster McLeod, and he'd wanted me to play the lead in it. And, but he couldn't get, this is in the mid sixties, he couldn't get any financing with, it, with me in the lead. So 
he then wrote Skidoo um, with a supporting part for me. And it was a great script. And it was a really crazy late 60s script, you know. And he called me up triumphantly and said, it, I've sold it. I said, to whom? He said, Otto Preminger. Now, I'm an Otto Preminger fan. But the last director I would have understood <laughs> would have been Otto Preminger. I said, are you kidding? There's lots of people you could sell this script to who could really make this movie. Well, Preminger wants to go with it. So then, and Preminger had a reputation for a terrible temper and all that, but I'd already worked with Jerry Robbins who had a reputation for a terrible temper and directed by my mother who had a reputation for a terrible temper. So Preminger and I almost immediately began to really get along. And again, we remained friends until the end of his life. And, and the, um, you will be in my next film, you know, that kind of thing. And so it was fascinating. And then he really gave me film acting lessons all through the shoot. Almost everything I've learned about film acting was on that shoot. And yet there was a feeling on the set that the movie just wasn't working. That indefinable feeling on a film set, this isn't adding up. And indeed, when it opened, it got terrible reviews. I mean, I mean, really, even worse than we thought. But then almost immediately, it began to have a cult. Within a week or two, it opened in, first of all, it opened in January. And that shows you what Hollywood thinks of a movie when they open it in January. It means, you know, uh, like a week or two after it opened and got just murdered. Film students in New York would come up to me on the subway and say, you're in Skidoo. Yeah. <laughs> and they, oh man, it showed every night at midnight for the whole year on, on Friday nights at the Berkeley campus in California. And ever since then, it's been kind of a cult movie. Yeah. Otto never figured that out. I'd run into him on the street and he would say, Austin, why do they like this movie? I would say, I don't know. Otto, I love all your other movies, but and I'm proud to be in it. But I don't know why they like form. They had an auto premature thing, retrospective, and it's dazzling. I mean, but significantly they did not did not include Skidoo in it. But just about it, I went like every day and saw ones I'd never even heard of and the way they're shot and the way they're acted. And it's just really impressive. And um, so that was that experience. Yeah. Your first um, Broadway directing job, I believe, was Shelter, the musical by Cryer and Ford. And so how did that sort of come about? Well, first of all, I knew both, both Gretchen Cryer and Nancy Ford from when I was in college. And the shows at the Dramat, the extracurricular shows, uh, they both had husbands who were in in graduate school there. Gretchen's husband, David Cryer, was in the Divinity School. He then pursued, pursued a career in musical theater. And, and Nancy's husband was, she was called, called Nancy Curry, and her husband was, was, uh, was Bob Curry. And I forget what school he was in, but he became a stage manager. In fact, was one of the stage managers for, for Fiddler on the Roof and for the little foxes that I was in with um, the Mike Nichols. 
So, so oh. they would come over. So they had receptionist jobs. Both Gretchen and I had jobs in like the factories and they had like in the offices and stuff. And then they would come over at night and rehearse with a dramat. And Gretchen played the lead in a Maltby and Shire musical that we did one spring, an original musical called Grand Tour. And, and Nancy was also in it. And then, so we knew each other very well through all that. Then we all came to New York and Gretchen and Nancy wrote this musical called The Last Sweet Days of Isaac, which in which I played the title role. It was basically a two character musical with a backup band and back up on the platform who would play small parts, come downstairs and play small parts a couple of times, but essentially a two character musical. And um, we had a week and a half of previews off Broadway at the same theater where I'd been in Oh Dad, Poor Dad. And it, eight years before, and it, it looked in the week and a half of previews, it wasn't looking good. The audiences were, didn't know what to do with it. And the producer even ordered the scenery to be carried away after the opening night performance. And then abruptly, about two or three nights before the opening, it kind of turned around. We had this marvelous director named Wood Baker who had directed the Fantastics and who had directed their earlier musical, earlier Cry and Ford musical. And he would just, he would sort of do what Jerry Robbins did. He just kept doing detail work. And then all of a sudden it just was working. And then they suddenly realized just for the opening, oh, we, this might go well. Oh, we better call off the people who are gonna to come to take the scenery away. And we got rave reviews. We won Obies, we ran a year and a half. And their next musical was Shelter. And meanwhile, my career as a director began to take off professionally at Williamstown. So they asked me to direct Shelter. They should have asked Word, Wood Baker. I kind of blew it. Um, it's a wonderful piece. And I, it's, it's still ahead of its time. And it was certainly ahead of its time then. I think it's going to have its day, you know. And, and it, it, we had a good cast and everything, including Joanna Merlin, actually. So recently at 54 Below, you know, the cabaret space in New York, two, three years ago, they had a Monday night where they did shelter and they'd rehearsed it for a while. And they had, and the, and the guy in it was played by Gretchen's son, Johnny Cryer. And um, the whole cast was good. And they had the little band that they had down there. And it was brilliant. And I said to Gretchen, you've just got to get this show on again. It doesn't look remotely dated. In fact, it looks even still a little bit ahead of the game. And, and it's, it's so original and the score is gorgeous beyond words. But I didn't do a good job with it. I've only, I love musicals, but I've only, and of course I was in one of the very great musicals and also one of the great little musicals, which is The Last Sweet Days of Isaac. But I don't know how to direct. The only exception, the only really successfully received direction I've had for a musical was, but this is cheating, Fiddler on the Roof, when a few years ago I directed it up in Boston at New Rep. And, and um, 
Um, but that's cheating. I mean, I was in the production directed by the master of musical theater direction some years ago. And I didn't copy him at all, but still I had his whole vision, you know, in my mind. So yeah, that was that. So um, then when on their next show, which is I'm getting my together and taking on, they they returned to they returned to Ward Baker and they had a great success with it. And so yeah, that shelter. And so you mentioned the Little Foxes, which you did with Mike Nichols and with Ann Baxter and others. And so yeah. and um and Bancroft. Yeah. Oh, and Bancroft. Sorry. Oh, yeah. and and what was it like to be collaborating with Mike Nichols to be directing? Well, very exciting. I I got the part virtually by accident. I mean, literally by accident. I he wanted to offer it to Dustin Hoffman. And he already had Anne Bancroft and George C. Scott and Margaret Layton and E.G. Marshall and B.R. Richards all lined up. He wanted, um, um, he, wanted, um, he wanted Dustin Hoffman to play Leo, the son of the role E.G. And at that time he was directing Dustin in The Graduate. I mean, they were still in the middle of filming it. And Dustin was taking his time making up his mind because I think Dustin, first of all, he was going to be exhausted by the time the graduate was over. And secondly, I think he just wanted breathing space and he kept not saying yes or no. Finally, Mike told the New York producer, okay, find me another actor. And my picture was in the paper that day because in the Times, because I had that day one the Derwent Award, an award they don't have anymore, for a play that I'd done six months before, directed by Alan Arkin, that had closed in a week once it got out of previews. And so my picture was in the paper, and the producer said, Austin, he's hiring. And then Mike said early in rehearsal, I was surprised when I got the part. I mean, I knew the play, and I thought, that's weird, but great. Then he said to me early in rehearsal one day, come over here. He said, you know, you're totally miscast in this part. <laughs> I, I said, yeah. <laughs> said, but don't worry, we're going we're gonna to work. We're going to find a way. So for reasons I still do not understand, we, they kept trying and I just kept dragging my feet and not changing my performance at all because I had no idea what to do. Finally, we had a run through this is all on the stage of the Vivian Beaumont where it was being done. And he gave ample notes to all these other great, great artists. And um, none to me. And I thought, clearly he thinks I've achieved perfection. So I, I can't believe what an idiot I was. And I said, so I, I guess you're pleased, Mike. And he said, how can I be pleased with it? Give, even give notes on a performance that's wrong from beginning to end. Now we have worked and worked and worked and you just keep not changing anything. He was totally right. He was totally right. I had like by any definition blown it. So I went back in the backstage area and Anne Bancroft was there and she said, you don't look well. She was very direct, <laughs> Anne Bancroft. I, and I told her what Mike had show Mike. The next day I come in ex fully expecting to be fired. That night I went out and got drunk with my friends. Came in the next morning, hungover, totally expecting to 
have that little meeting where you're called into a room and, and he would say, look, it's my fault. I didn't think through this casting. It's not your fault. I'm sure we're working against somebody, but this just isn't going to work. I was all set for that. And instead, Anne Bancroft pulls me and says, I figured out. I figured out what you're doing wrong that he doesn't like. Now she's playing the leading role. She put time into thinking about this. And, and, um, and Lillian Hellman was on her back. Lillian, I think, wanted someone else in the role. And um, so she was dealing with all of that. And she thought this through. She said, you walk wrong. You gotta relocate the center of your body. You gotta lead with your crotch. The only thing, you lead with your mind because people, and she was very funny. Austin, because people have already told, always told you you're smart. Why, I have no idea, but they've always told you you're smart. And so you lead with your head. Leo's always been told he was stupid. And the only thing he's proud of is his relationship with a character called, offstage character called the woman from Mobile. And it's never even occurred to Leo that she's a prostitute. So just go out there and lead with your crotch. Don't think of anything else when you walk. So I thought, well, I have nothing at all to lose. I hope I'm even called back rather than fired before. Um, if I was called in the room to be fired, I was going to say to my, can I just go out for half an hour and lead with my crotch? <laughs> but I didn't have to do that. And I started just to walk different. And he said, wait, it's all solved. I don't know what happened. She said, don't tell Mike. I've had this conversation with you. So I didn't. And he's, he said, it's, oh, you, you got it, you got it, it's there. Wow. And that's how I, I was able to keep that role. And it was just, and we played for eight weeks at the Lincoln Center and it was being on stage with that cast, oh my God. And they were all got along very well with each other. And of course, they, and I, ensemble playing was extraordinary and it's a wonderful play yeah, yeah and of course 14 years later i directed the little foxes yes, yeah. and that was lovely and during one of the great first of all elizabeth taylor was the sweetest person in the whole world and a good actress and um but also um during that time when i directed i really became friends with lillian hellman and that was a whole lot of fun. Oh, yeah. She loved to fight with people. She loved to fight with people. It was her favorite thing. So we fought a lot. She said, I'm going, you don't understand, Austin, that friends can fight, she said to me. I'm going to teach you that friends can fight. So we would have knockdown, drag out arguments, sometimes in front of crowds of people. And she would be absolutely delighted, you know. And, and, uh, um, and I, I got to be pretty close to her and I really liked her. Then she died just a couple of years after that. And uh, we talked about doing another one of her plays. And I so wish we had done that before she died. I so wish we had done that. That's a regret. And how did you sort of approach The Little Foxes having also been in it? Well, it was 14 years after I'd been in it. So, of course, I'd never seen Mike's production. I was in it. So I just remembered the general sense of it. 
But this was now, of course, a completely different cast. Instead of Margaret Leighton, we had Maureen Stapleton, which is a whole other way of casting that role. We had excellent other actors in the supporting roles. Um, one of those, plus Elizabeth, plus Maureen, all got, got Tony nominations. And I did too, the only one I've ever gotten. And um, um, it was a very intense time. It was very harmonious. There was not, I don't remember a cross word ever being exchanged between anybody in that show. Tom Aldridge was the other actor who got nominated and he was brilliant. But the other actors were, were great too. It gets, Tony nominations are about as arbitrary as it gets. I mean, there is, they're a whole lot of fun. There, it's a whole lot of fun, that whole thing. But one who takes them seriously is, is barking up the wrong tree. Yeah. And, and the um, shelter got some nominations and, um, the, and a couple of other shows I've done. One with Kate Nelligan, which, who, who is brilliant. Both Little Fox's experiences were fabulous. Yes. And it's not a play I ever had thought I would ever be involved with. I mean, I always liked the play from when I was a kid, but I never thought. Yeah. And yet they were two of the major experiences in my life. I'm sure that everyone must ask you about Elizabeth Taylor and working with her, but I'm curious to know about. Well, first of all, she's a sweetheart. Just, I mean, utterly. And she's really a um, ensemble member. I mean, she just works with who she's working with. And um, she, and also, I mean, I didn't even have to think about it. I thought she was a great idea for the role. And um, do you know that play? Yes, yes, I do. So there's Regina, and then there are two older brothers. The oldest of those is Uncle Ben, who's, who lives alone and who's the real schemer and is a brilliant man from the way he talks. That had been George C. Scott. In the production I directed was Anthony Zerbe. Um, but when in my interview with Lillian, who I really hadn't seen since I'd been in The Little Foxes, and she was falling on a hard time. She was losing her eyesight and she was much older and frailer, but she was still sharp as she could possibly be. So she said, who should play Ben? Because she was sort of implying that's as important a part as Regina. And she's right. I said, I said, I said, Mike, meaning Mike Nichols. She said, that's brilliant. That's the moment I got the job. And of course we offered it to Mike and he very respectfully declined it. My friend said, are you out of your mind? You're going to direct Mike Nichols in a play he directed you in. And you're going to direct Elizabeth Taylor who Mike directed in her finest screen performance in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. What do you think you're doing? And I would say, well, I just think if ever he says anything, I'll just defer to it. <laughs> if he starts directing Elizabeth, I'll say to her, do what he says. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, he, Mike would be the definitive Ben. Yeah. And that idea so surprised and knocked Lillian out that and also the audacity I had of even suggesting it, that she, that's when I got the job. She, she hadn't seen anything I directed ever. I mean, she knew I was a director and I, there was a production going on be, just before Little Foxes of um, 
the late Ibsen play, John Gabriel Borkman. Do you know that play? I, I know that you worked on it. But... Yeah, I did. And a cast with people like E.G. Marshall and Irene Worth and Rosemary Murphy. I mean, it was high class. It was a certain square. And I, and um, she said to me, with, she was always, she had total emphysema and she was, you had to light a new cigarette every 20 minutes. And she was going, I would come to see, um, I would come to see your show, meaning John Gabriel Borkman, but, but, but late Ibsen, forget it. <laughs> I said, well, well uh, yeah, it's got Irene Worth in it, who had been in her play Toys in the Attic. And I don't care who's in it. Late Ibsen, I'm not gone. <laughs> she was not without opinion, Lily. In, in Mike's production, there was tension with Lillian and, and Mike because, and, 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 and Lillian would say to me when I was directing Little Bucks, of course, your production is not that good, but it's nowhere near as bad as Mike's. Now, read the Walter Kerr review of the Mike Nichols production, again, 1967. It's, it's totally accurate and it's an unqualified rave in great detail and that was somewhat typical of the way it was received not totally typical but but largely typical so she kept saying this it's not as bad as mike's <laughs> which to her was meant to be a soaring compliment i finally said look i gotta confess something Lillian. and i know i was in it but still i i know what it was i think mike's production was brilliant she said, if you had told me that at the interview, you would never have gotten this job. And she meant it. I mean, when she, she was extraordinarily opinionated, personally I think it had a lot to do with Anne Bancroft. And um, she cut down Anne's performance a lot. Anne started out to be extraordinary and she ended up being very, very good. I mean, she was a really good actress. But the but in the first few days there was kind of an a, a, a kind of an a, kind of an abandon to what she was doing that was unique in the history of that role and really kind of exciting no not kind of really exciting and one day Mike came and said we have to change it all and he was in a very grim mood and he started toning her down and everything it all got very tense for a while and I knew that was a I, even then I figured out that, we all figured out that was because of Lillian. But still, it turned out, I mean, a wonderful play, a great director, a cast full of marvelous people, it turned out fine. But anyway, so that was her. The production is not as, is not that good, but it's not as bad as Mike's, was the raves I would get from her all the time. And then we would have these wonderful fights and she would howl, she would laugh so hard that she would be unable to breathe. And she and Maureen had this, they had a friendship that I think went all the way back to Toys in the Attic. Um, um, and they would, their friendship consisted of insulting each other all the time. <laughs> and it was hilarious to listen to those exchanges. And of course they adored each other. Oh, I was, you've been very successful at maintaining a career as both a director and an actor at the same time, but have you ever found any difficulty in that, in doing both, or? No, 
see, I, I, I hardly ever appear. Sometimes I've gone into shows I've directed after they've been on for quite a few months. But that's not the same as being in them all through rehearsals. You know, I've never done that. I've never, from the get-go, been both the actor and the director of the same production. And, and I, I, I don't think I ever would unless something really weird happened that an actor pulled out at the last minute. We couldn't get somebody or whatever, but, but even then I would go to, to great lengths to find another actor. Um, and the, um, it's not, I don't have a preference. In other words, basically I take whatever job comes along. And that is where I ended part one of my conversation with Austin Pendleton. Thank you for listening and make sure to come back next time for part two.